1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a great honor to welcome Mr. Philip Ackerman Leist. He is an associate professor of environmental studies and director of the Farm and Food Project. In the beautiful state of Vermont at Green Mountain College, and he is the author of a book that we are going to be talking about today called Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems. Welcome, Philip.
0: Great to be here with you, Melinda.
1: In preparation for this interview, I certainly read through key parts of your book. I also read your personal statement online and did a little research into your history and education. And I have to let our listeners know that your personal statement on your university website is one of the nicest I've ever read. And I want to share a line of that with our listeners and have you introduce yourself through some of the words that you use. You write, ultimately, the cultivation of good citizens and the cultivation of good soils are not so different. What do you mean by that?
0: Sure. I think, you know, there's a certain care and forethought that we have to have whenever we tackle either of those. Um it really is important that we think not just about what we're doing, you know, for ourselves and our own generation, but also what really is going to come next. And these things are really about paying attention to the subtleties and trying to make sure that we're aware of those and those subtleties very often are interactions and not just things. And so interactions really matter in these
1: worlds. Yes, they do. Before we got on the air, You were telling me a story about your son and how observant he was in recognizing that the young chicks would be less likely to eat something if they didn't see their mother chickens eating Mm -hmm. it themselves. So what that told me was that at a very young age, children are making these critical observations. And yet I worry that in today's generation, lucky children still have the opportunity to make those observations, but too many of us don't.
0: Exactly. And I think my wife Erin and I always recognize that we're incredibly privileged to be able to homeschool children in an off-grid environment, you know, where really they can focus on these things that are happening in the natural world. But it's far too much a rarity and not something that enough children get to experience. So, you know, I hope that's part of rebuilding a food shed is really you know, giving children especially the opportunities to participate in, in this act of cultivation that's so important.
1: Right. Well, your book comes with very high praise from some of the people that I admire so much in the food system and doing food system work for decades. So the name of the book is Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems. And I think to a lot of listeners, those words might be a little, well, they're, they're not used typically every day at your cocktail party. So why don't you define for us what is a food shed
0: First of all, it doesn't necessarily exist without us thinking about it pretty hard. It um, you know, it really is conceptual and, and there's an interesting history here. And the first time that the word food shed was coined in the United States was by a fellow named Walter Hedden uh, back in the 1920s and he was head of the port authority in New York City. He was really thinking about um, watersheds at that time and the necessity of New York City conserving its watershed, and so started thinking about the food sheds in a similar light. So it was a proposal that he put forward but it was latent for a number of years and really didn't pop back up into use until nineteen ninety one when there was another scholar, Getz, who actually put this idea forward that we needed to think of a food shed as this combination of topography, infrastructure, food production, you know, really putting all the pieces together to understand where our food was coming from and starting to move us toward the notion of thinking a bit more about the potential for self reliance in a food shed and and so, you know, I've inherited a lot of this thinking about food sheds, and the way I'm really thinking about it for myself these days is that a food shed, in many ways, is the periphery of our influence. You know, how far out uh, can we actually really renegotiate the way that our food system works and uh, really find a way to make it food shed more habitable, more hospitable, and certainly you know more aligned with the food justice. So it's this periphery of influence that I'm really focused on here of late.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I did want to mention a couple of items before we get into the thick of this book. But one of the people who gave you praise was Joan Gusau, and she's the author of many books, including Growing Older in This Organic Life. And she's been a leader in the nutrition world, certainly, and one of the first, I think, visionaries to think about truly sustainable food systems. But I love what she says. She says, now that it's not just acceptable but fashionable to write about local food systems, lots of people do it. But, and here's the praise, few pay close attention, however, as Ackerman Lice does in this volume to the variously shaped components successful local systems will require and the multiple efforts around the country working to create them. She says this is a wise, informed, and thoroughly useful book. Who did you write this book for?
0: I think for folks who are already interested in this idea of local or community-based food systems, but want to have a more sophisticated understanding of, of how they function and how we might reshape them, uh, really to to help recreate a world that we're interested in. So it's certainly not a book that's you know just about the cheerleading. It really is about you know trying to to lay out the plans to think in much more detail and complexity about how we really retool this. Because I I think one of the things that we perhaps made a mistake in doing and thinking about local food systems is we've isolated them and not often enough recognized really that exist, they're really nested within regional, national, and international food systems. And so it's not an easy matter before us here. And so I really wanted to encourage people to think more complexly about this whole situation.
1: Well, at the very end of the book, you talk about your goal is really to get people to think a little bit differently and a little bit broader, and I love that too. I love the concept of thinking critically and thinking about unintended consequences and things that we don't typically view is on the surface, and one of the quotes that you chose, and I have to just say that as an author, putting together a book, it must have been very difficult for you to choose what was that quote you were going to put on the first page, and I don't think you could have done a better job. You chose Thomas Paine from Common Sense, and you say, well, he says, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. And I think that is exactly what we have today.
0: Well, it was a beautiful quote that almost literally landed in my lap, and it was in the very last days of writing the last chapter of the book, actually, and meeting with my editor, Joni Praded, and actually her husband uh, walked in the door as our meeting ended and had found that quote in a newspaper, set it down in front of me, and after having spent a week together uh, talking about these issues, he said, here, I think this sums it up. <laughs> so I was incredibly fortunate to stumble upon that quote right at the end, and it really did fit.
1: Absolutely. And then the question becomes, how exactly do we transition when so much is invested in the industrial model and so much energy and emphasis is devoted into media messages making us think or guiding our thinking to believe that this is the most efficient, the progressive, the modern way, and the only way to feed ourselves.
0: Right, and you know those those are big questions, and I, I think that takes us back a little bit to how we might want to conceive of a food shed. Um, that is, if folks so choose you know, as as this periphery of our influence, because it can be so daunting, you know, really to start this work and realize what one is up against, and not just one, but, but many, you know, all of us as we're trying to make these changes. So, you know, this periphery of our influence, I think, is um, especially important because there are things that we can change, and, you know, our ability to change those things, you know, it's sort of... Um, is most magnified closest to home, and as we reach out further and further, obviously, it's, it's more work and a little more complex, and not that we should neglect those things, but starting at home is ultimately the right answer as far as I'm concerned, and then working our way outward.
1: Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that you start out pretty much with this idea of a map. Okay, We need a map in order to get from point A to point B, to move to a more ecologically sound or sensible food system. And you bring out this map, the Armour's Food Source map from 1922. How was it that that map spoke to you?
0: First of all, it's just such a beautiful map. And again, I stumbled upon it you know, late in the research and the writing of the book. And it was just such a powerful piece because it was so beautifully done in 1922. And it was a map that was sent out to public schools and libraries across the country And really was a a map in which, you know, the Armour Meatpacking Company was trying to show how U.S. agriculture, you know, in fact the U.S. consumer would be better off if, in fact, we broke the country into units of specialization. And there were, again, that word that you used previously, efficiency, you know, that was coming out loud and clear at that point in the 1920s and certainly earlier than that. And so really the idea was to build out a food system that was based on these efficiencies, which you can obviously interpret in many different ways, so, you know, it's, it's a map that had an aesthetic appeal, and I think as we're thinking about food sheds, part of the job we need to do is to figure out how we rename and reclaim what matters most to us, what's around us. And so, you know, maps are powerful, and P.D. Armour and his crew knew that and did a really good job in laying
1: it out. And I just want to let our listeners know that the map is found in the center of your book, and it says the greatness of the United States is founded on agriculture. And there was an emphasis in our being independent, in feeding ourselves. And now if you look at where our food is coming from, now I know Vermont is an outlier. (laughs) But if you you look at states, like I'm located here in what we call the heartland in the Midwest, and I know my friends in Iowa have done a lot of work with local food systems in particular. And I remember my friend telling me that over 90% of the food in Iowa that people eat is imported. Right. So even though they're growing all of this corn and all of this soy and producing all of these hogs, the meat and those basic building blocks of other processed foods go out of the state and then they come back in. And I think that that's more the norm than it would be the case in Vermont. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. In fact, I think that's the norm, almost you know, all across the country, and, and even in Vermont. I mean, we we are an out, outlier. We don't want to be outright liars about what we're doing. We are <laughs> we are making really good progress here in Vermont. Um, but we're at the point now where you know about five percent of our um, food is uh, locally produced here in Vermont, and we're trying to figure out how to get to ten percent and by 2020. And so that's a You know, it's an incredibly complex task, but it's even harder in other states. And as you look around the country and, you know, as I've traveled around with this book and listening and sharing... One of the things that's come across loud and clear is that we're incredibly fortunate in Vermont because we've got, you know, a legislature that listens to these issues. We have a governor for whom these issues are very important who actually grew up on a dairy farm. We have an agency of agriculture and a secretary of ag who are paying attention. So part of this can't be about being parochial and just, you know, sticking close to home. It does have to be influencing our leaders as well because that does make a big difference in the end.
1: Yeah, and there's so much money going to politicians to influence decisions that at their heart and core you'd think they'd know would be wrong. I mean, wasn't Vermont actually – Vermont was sued, weren't they, for um, wanting to label GMO foods?
0: Well, there's – as we've been discussing in Vermont, the possibilities here of of labeling GMO foods, one of the the parts of the discussion – which isn't an issue of paranoia, but really of reality, is that you know if we do go that route and we put our necks out as being you know one of the first states in the country to do that, inevitably you know there are going to be legal challenges and they are going to cost the state a lot of money, mm-hmm. and so you know we really have to be aware of the consequences of, of going that route. So that's been part and parcel of the conversation as these things have tried to move forward um, legislatively.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate the fact that Vermont is trying to be a national leader, and I appreciate all you 've done. I want to just take a little break and let our listeners know that we are speaking with Mr. Philip Ackerman Lice. He is the author of Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems. The book has been described as a critical compass and a practical guide. He is also, in addition to being an author, he is a farmer and professor. He is at Green Mountain College, where he established the college's farm and sustainable agricultural curriculum, and he is director of the Green Mountain College Farm and Food Project. I thought it was interesting, Mr. Ackerman Leist, that one of the things that you do with your students is you focus on their home bioregions. And I wonder, as a professor at the Green Mountain College, what you've learned from your students with regard to their understanding of their food systems and their local food sheds. And have you been able to successfully take them from probably a more industrial system to understanding how critical the local food systems are?
0: Sure. No, it's a great question, and we do have our master's students scattered all across the United States, and right now I believe we have five in Canada and one in Japan. And, you know, the beauty of this graduate program, which is predominantly online, we do all come together once a year, is that we've got people scattered, you know, geographically all across North America. And so these comparisons are really, really important. And one of the things that comes across very quickly is that, um, you know, there aren't a whole lot of universals in local And, you know, what we really have to to recognize is that local isn't formulaic. It really does have to bubble up from the bottom, and we need to support it, and we need to recognize that local food systems are going to look very different. So this notion of having recipes for local, you know, can can get us into a certain amount of trouble because the issues are so different. And just, you know, one example, I think one of the – biggest aha moments I've had with the graduate students of late came from a, a student named Jade Gabry, who actually is of the Mohawk tradition. And she talked about food sheds and her notion of a food shed really is you know, being part of the Mohawk people you know, that are straddling the border in New York and Canada. And she said, without our language, our food shed will die because we really have to think about not only what we've named things, but also how we've named and described processes and how we pass on those traditions and she you know so she made a really fascinating link between the notions of of language, food culture, belonging, and ultimately what a food shed is so i've I've learned an incredible amount from all of these students and as far as you know, what they're doing in terms of trying to figure out how to push back against this industrialized food system. Really, our master's program and our undergraduate program in many ways are are both built upon the notion that we have to create positive levers of change and that you can't figure out those levers of change and you certainly can't employ them until you really understand the system. So breaking down the system, really looking at the different components of the food system, that's what we've done, I I think, extraordinarily well. And you know, hopefully in the end, uh, these folks are bound to be leaders in the food system uh, throughout North America.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up Native Americans. I recently saw a film called Black Gold, White Water. might be White Water, Black Gold, but it was about fracking in Canada, and there was a meeting with some indigenous people in the region whose water was being contaminated because of the fracking process, and what was so sad was at this meeting, you had to listen very carefully, but one of the older gentlemen said, you mean no more fishing? And you recognize that, you know, fishing was a way of life. It was their one of their major food ways, and it was going to be lost. And at that point, it just struck me how tragic it is when people lose these cultural ways of life. The same thing happened, of course, down with Katrina and then with the oil spill down in the New Orleans area, where you had people whose entire lives were based on fishing and on the environmental landscape around them and then all of a sudden it was contaminated and lost. And I wonder if you address any of that in your coursework at your college.
0: Right. You know, I I think certainly as as we look at all of these issues, um, unfortunately, you know, American agriculture is, you know, certainly linked to many successes, but it's also, you know, fraught with a lot of tragedy and sometimes that's social and sometimes it's ecological and sometimes those are, you know, tied together very, very tightly. So certainly as we look around the country and students bring in their bioregions into the discussions that we have, whether it's in the online environments or face-to-face, those conversations are very important. And what is positive in all of this, I think, is that as we examine these problems, and you know, we are looking for these these levers of change and trying to find those collectively in many ways so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel too much and too often. And yet, at the same time, recognizing that those levers have changed, differ fairly significantly in, in different social and ecological environments.
1: Do you want to give us an example of that?
0: Sure. Thinking about it, certainly the whole issue of the Gulf oil spill is something that comes across loud and clear. And. You know, as you look at that and you start thinking about you know, poverty, you know, the degree to which you know, that issue is—it's not just an ecological issue, but certainly it's, it's bound very tightly with the poverty that's too endemic in, in that particular area, and the ecological consequences and how those two actually come together—it's really a, a disturbing scenario. And what's interesting about you know, New Orleans and other places along the Gulf Coast is that the resilience, in my view, in many ways, is the fact that. These traditions are so deeply linked to culture, and so instead of ultimately this being entirely a pessimistic and bleak story, there is hope that really springs forth, and it springs forth from the grassroots and from the culinary and the the cultural traditions, and and also you know these ways of life that you talk about. So you know I, I think that's one of the cases that we really need to look at more closely and really bring to the fore here for the. The next couple of decades, it certainly is a it's an issue that is worth much much more exploration.
1: Mm-hmm. You've got three children, and I wonder, as a father who is also very much enlightened with regard to the environment and our food, what is it that concerns you most about their future?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's hard for me to dwell on the bleak, and again, because I live in a, a place of such you know privilege and beauty, I think in, in Vermont and living close to an, a nature conservancy preserve so the things that i worry about climate change you know the ability to a, uh, really adapt ecologically and economically you know I, I don't focus too much on on the bleakness because i see what they're learning on a daily basis i mean they're they're out in the garden you know, not only these days helping to plant the seeds but actually doing the planting in many cases doing the harvesting helping with the task they were actually helping me change the oil on the tractor and <laughs> grease the tractor for a neighbor here who's going to use it tomorrow, really trying to pass on those skills that hopefully are going to be things that actually you know give them the ability to not only survive but also thrive, and, and I hope share those with others.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess the reason why I asked you that question was because I think that that leads to some policy actions, and I really want our listeners and individuals to understand that in order to protect that which we love and the beauty that surrounds us, ultimately we have to look at some policies and perhaps attack those so that we have a bright future and not a bleak outlook. And I'm wondering if you focus at all on policies and which ones you would like to change first and foremost to protect your children's future.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, as we think about my children and others and and certainly their parallels in, in suburbs and urban areas. I mean, one of the the very local policies that I hope we, we change more and more you know, are those that are related to what we we do with our yards, what we do with our lawns, and being able to convert those and actually utilize those for food production. That's one of the things that I think is very important at the local level. And then as we look at the federal level and really start to be more expansive in our own thinking, you know, it's important to look at things like the farm bill. And certainly, um, you know, the subsidies are have been very problematic and this whole notion of crop insurance is um, you know, is getting us into a, a whole new dynamic of subsidies uh, you know that are really you know, really in endanger you know the the national budget in many ways, but also, you know, it, they have to be linked to conservation measures as well. That's one of the very important pieces with this new farm bill that as we're looking at crop insurance, that we make sure that that's tightly tied as tightly as possible, you know, to the conservation regulations that we've had in place for several decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know climate change, and, and certainly when I think about my own children and other children, there's just there's no clear view of of where things are going to be, you know, for my children when they're at my age, and really what this landscape is going to look like. Um, so I think the more we can do in terms of climate mitigation by way of policy, the better. Um, but by the same token, I think it's also very important that we, we teach our children, you know, ways to behave as human beings that really are going to mitigate that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of the lawn issue, I have to bring up one of the topics that you talk about, which is, you've got it titled, You Can't Grow That Here. And you talk <laughs> about Fritz, is it Haig?
0: Mm-hmm, yep.
1: Okay, <laughs> so you say, just invite artist Fritz Haig to drop in for a little artistic event. What? Ha- tell me about Fritz.
0: Yeah, a really interesting character who um, has taken it on as a challenge really to um, put a mirror to ourselves culturally, you know, and and give us a sense of just how bland lawns are. And so, you know, when he's landed in various places and been asked to do things to lawns, suddenly he turns those lawns into these incredible aesthetic elements, but that are also highly edible. And so it, it really turns the whole notion of uh, of a lawn on its head. And it's one of the things, actually, as I look out my office uh, window right now, I see we have the students convert the front lawn here at the college farmhouse you know, to an entirely edible landscape. And that's really where we need to go, is really providing people with the opportunity to take control of their food system you know, right at the roots and right outside the door.
1: And once again, there are oftentimes in many, especially planned communities, there's resistance to that, right?
0: Oh, it's nuts. I mean, you know, the fact that you, you can't grow things that are trellised, that you can't grow something as tall as corn, the fact that you can't put things in your front yard but that gardens always belong in the backyard, regardless of you know, solar exposure or even, you know, the, the soils or even whether there is, in fact, a backyard. So we've got to get beyond this crazy notion that things have to somehow conform to an aesthetic that really comes from the British Isles and maybe makes sense if you've got sheep, but doesn't really add up very well when actually you're trying to grow for your pantry.
1: That's right. Well, I want to let our listeners know that, that your book, I've got it totally marked up with all kinds of notes because there are so many pieces that I want to use as a reference to go back to. You've got a great section on energy and how much energy is devoted to different sectors of food production, and I just want to let our listeners know that fertilizers take 36% of that pie, and then diesel fuel and pesticides and electricity, and so you really show where energy use is within the farming landscape, which I think is important, but I don't want to dominate this conversation. I want to ask you, in this couple of minutes we have left, is there something from this book that you want to make sure our listeners know? Sure,
0: I think probably it's it's the primary revelation that I had just in having the privilege of, of researching and writing the book. And as we talked about the book with the Post Carbon Institute and Chelsea Green, you know, we started off talking about local foods and local food systems. And that was a, a good starting point. But what I realized as I talked about people who are, you know, much more sophisticated in this arena than, than I am, who've got decades of experience, you know, who've been working on the, these issues. But I realized in the course of writing the book that it's not just about local food systems. It really is about community-based food systems. And if we want to move away from this notion that local foods and local food systems are somehow elitist or associated with a certain demographic, then let's restart the conversation. And, you know, not only restart it, but let's reinvite the people who are coming to the table and really make this a bit more of a democratic process, you know, and, and certainly a, a more diverse representation of people at the table And let those folks who don't have very strong voices in our communities you know, have the first say sometimes as we try to figure out how to reshape these food systems. So let's see if we can't move beyond local food systems and really move into community-based food systems. And it's a long, long conversation, and there's a lot of doing, there's a lot of sweat equity, and it's not going to be done in this generation. Um, The vigilance really is going to have to be there for generations to come to keep this thing in play.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I like the way you have, in closing in your book, compassion and citizenship are at the root of community-based food systems. So our time is up, but I want to thank you for this truly important book. And I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mr. Philip Ackerman Leist. He is an author, a farmer, and professor. He is the author of Rebuilding the Food Shed. How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems. And he also found and directs the college's Master's in Sustainable Food Systems, the nation's first online graduate program in food systems at the Green Mountain College. And in closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you so much, Mr. Ackerman Leist, for being my guest and for writing this very inspiring book
0: thank you Millman